Hello, and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and today we're talking about the Affordable Care Act, popularly known as Obamacare. There are few issues as politically charged in the United States, but with its implementation already in full swing, it's important to find an effective way to measure its success or failure. Our guest today is Sheila Burke, a faculty research fellow at the Kennedy School's Malcolm Wiener Center for Social Policy, who recently co-wrote a paper from the Brookings Institution titled Affordable Care Act, A User's Guide to Implementation. Sheila, great to have you on. Good morning. I'm really pleased to be here. So in your introduction to that that paper, uh, you wrote that due to Obamacare's politicization, quote, in the short term, people will see what they want to see. Obviously, the implementation has gotten off to a bit of a rocky start, um, at least the individual mandate portion of it. Um, Is it still too early to effectively evaluate the law, or if not, when when does that moment come? Well, I think it's way too early. Uh, I think the... Uh, what we've seen over the last few weeks, over the last month or so, are a series of issues with respect to the rollout of the legislation uh, and the implementation, the ability of, or inability of individuals to essentially register for the program. And really what Elaine K. Mark and I, who is the co-author of the paper, uh, and I tried to describe is that there are always startup issues, uh, whether it's in the passage of Medicare in 65, whether it's the passage of the Medicare drug benefit in the 90s, there are always implementation issues. Uh, And so one wants to be cautious about leaping too quickly to conclusions uh, about what will and what will not work. And what we tried to do is suggest that we really needed to wait and see, uh, although certainly uh, the issues over the last month have complicated things tremendously. So uh, in some of those uh, previous public policy rollouts, um, they were really mostly federal programs. Uh, One of the things about Obamacare, one of the things that makes it difficult is the fact that it's really a very complicated mix between federal and state. Uh, Can you describe how that um, is affecting the rollout and, you know, when are we going to know that, you know, it's going to work? Well, you point out a very important issue, which is in the case of federally in the case of past legislation, uh, Medicare is a good example. There were a single set of rules, and essentially those rules applied federally across all the states. Uh, there was one set of expectations in terms of eligibility and enrollment. Uh, with respect to the ACA, of course, you have the combination of both the federal oversight, federal rules, but the ability of the states and private insurers to essentially implement and alter, in some respects, elements of the legislation. Uh, clearly, the Supreme Court's decision on Medicaid uh, complicated things dramatically in terms of who was eligible and what would occur in terms of the states. Now that was, uh, the Supreme Court ruled that um, the federal government couldn't force state governments Correct. to cover, uh, was it 133% over the poverty level? 133%, effectively 138 because there is a uh, an element that essentially adds to that. But essentially it allowed the states to make those choices. Uh, We know that there are more than half of the states that have chosen not to implement the Medicaid changes as envisioned. And as a result, you have those changes. You have state insurance commissioners that have responded differently. You have mandates in states with respect to benefits that are somewhat different. So while there is a federal infrastructure and there are federal rules, there are, in fact, variations that are occurring across the country. Uh, And it complicates, essentially, the implementation. Uh, We have seen over the last few weeks 
weeks uh, with the president uh, choosing to try and address the issue of people losing coverage, uh, that some of the state insurance commissioners have chosen to file uh, changes consistent with what the president has requested and states that have chosen not to. So again, another further indication of how variation can occur. So uh, the states that are have experienced the rocky rollout are mostly ones that declined to set up their own exchanges, um, and you know have dealt with a website that isn't working and people unable to sign up for healthcare. Uh, you know, just a month out from the individual mandate kicking Correct. in, um, is that if that continues to be the problem? Is that an indictment of the law of the law itself or the states that declined to actually, you know, go in and create the exchanges? Well, that's a difficult question to answer. I think it's really uh, an issue at both levels. Um, you're absolutely correct that the states that have chosen to have the federal government run the exchanges seem to have had a greater uh, set of issues because of the difficulty of enrolling. But even in states that have chosen to proceed ahead in their own right, uh, there are issues. I mean, this is an enormously complicated implementation with a lot of different sets of rules, a great deal of dependence on an, uh, an infrastructure, an IT infrastructure. Uh, and so it, whether or not the states have chosen to go with a federal exchange or to go with a state exchange, I mean, the issues still exist. It's certainly more evident in the non-state-run um, exchanges because they are simply dependent upon the federal government. And we've heard and seen the issues with the federal government being able to stand up. Uh, so one can't place the blame on the states. I mean, it's really a question of the failure of the system to essentially accommodate the number of people who chose to enroll. So Medicare Part D is maybe the uh, closest um, example of this kind of rollout. Um, it happened about a decade ago, mm -hmm. and uh, it had same or similar uh, federal and state um, issues with people who were enrolled twice in Medicaid, for instance. Um, can you compare the two? I mean, I, it's my understanding that Medicare Part D had a similarly difficult problem in the beginning, well, but it, it worked out. It, it was... Um different and a critical element in that there were federal rules. It was a federal benefit. It was the same benefit across the country. Uh, people were going to be offered the opportunity to essentially purchase um, drug coverage, uh, in most cases offered essentially by private insurers. Um, so in that respect, there are similarities between the private insurance markets. Uh, but in fact, it's different in that the, it was a rollout at a federal level. Yes, there were issues in terms of the relationship between the federal government and the state governments and the treatment of Medicaid patients and the clawback, something described as a clawback. Uh, but the circumstances were quite different. Nonetheless, there were issues. There were issues of complexity. There were concerns about the ability of individuals to navigate the marketplace, choose among plans, in many cases a great number of plans, to compare and contrast. But again, there were some fairly fundamental things that were quite different. And one of those was essentially it was a federal set of rules and a federal set of guidelines. So in your paper, you set out, uh, I think, six yardsticks for success, basically measurements of you know whether the law works or not. I'm just to quickly rattle them off, um, the number of people insured, uh, cost of premiums, the number of uh, uh, plan options on the exchanges, um, whether or not there's a decline in employer coverage, um, if the federal-state conflict uh, ends up becoming a larger problem, um, and out-of-pocket expenditures, whether they go up and down on health care. Um, among all of those uh, yardsticks, is there 
are there some that matter more? I mean, if if there are mixed results after you know a few years, how do we come up with uh, do do we say it's a success or not? Well, I think each of them is important in its own right. For example, uh, the goal of the legislation was, in fact, primarily coverage to essentially address the uh, the close to 50 million people in this country without health insurance coverage. So clearly, whether or not uh, we see a decline in the number of uninsured would be a critical measure. Uh, whether or not plans uh, continue to participate, uh, the efforts over the last few weeks and the issues that have arisen with uh, essentially people being unable to enroll, the question of whether to continue essentially the coverage that exists today will alter substantially the risk for insurance companies. And so whether or not they continue to play, continue to offer coverage, what their financial status is and, and what those risks are, I think will be a critical issue. Uh, certainly whether or not we see an increase in the number of people that essentially are paying more out of pocket and more costs because of the structure of the insurance plans that are offered, because of the risks going forward as they look at what the risk pool looks like. Uh, so each of them is, in, is really important in its own right. Uh, the role of the employer has always been an issue. We've seen a slight decline, and ha that's been the case for some period of time for a variety of reasons. Uh, but one of the questions with this legislation is will employers simply choose not to offer coverage and will you see a greater reliance on essentially the exchanges, which could alter the size of the pool, could alter the size of the federal subsidies. Um, so again, each of them independent of one another, all of them collectively I think reflect elements of the legislation uh, that are important for us to keep an eye on. So I uh one particularly interesting example of a state that seems to have had success so far is Kentucky. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I don't think it's the only deep red state with mm -hmm. its own exchange that accepts the Medicaid, but it might be. I'm, I'm not One of the few. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, it, will it be a good measurement of, of what changes could possibly be made to make, it affect, make the law work if um, you know, it's put in contrast to other states that aren't working? Well, I think Kentucky won't be the only state we'll look at. We'll look at California. We'll look at a number of states that have um, chosen to go forward and how they've essentially implemented, how they've uh, done outreach, how they enrolled people, what's happened with respect to the Medicaid population. Each of the states has a very different set of circumstances in terms of the number of uninsured, uh, in terms of the availability of private coverage. Um, certainly the contract between states that have chosen to expand Medicaid and those that have not will be an important thing for us to look at. Uh, what happens to that group of people that are very poor but are not poor enough for Medicaid or don't qualify but aren't essentially able to secure a subsidy through the exchange? There's this odd group of uh, very low-income individuals below 100% of the poverty line. What happens to them? Um, so it really is going to be, a, uh, you know, what what happens in Arkansas? The governor having made a decision to essentially purchase private coverage for their expansion population. Uh, I think each of the states is going to present an opportunity to examine different kinds of influences, different kinds of decisions, and uh, different circumstances in each state. Now, in general, that kind of, uh, you know, getting different results, trying different ideas uh, could be useful. But uh, one signature thing, as I mentioned about this law, is its intense politicization, um, which has made kind of, you know, nibbling at the edges and trying to make small changes difficult. 
Do you think that there's a way that maybe, you know, a couple of years from now when we're seeing, you know, a, a, a change could make the law better? Um, do you think that the political will will exist to actually make it happen? Well, you've, you've raised a very important question. In the normal course, uh, a conference would have occurred between the House and the Senate. Uh, some of the issues that arose in the drafting of the legislation would have been addressed. That, of course, did not occur. And what we essentially have is the Senate passed bill. Uh, and there are a number of issues that have arisen as a result of that. This odd population below 100% of the poverty line is a good example. Uh, and the question I think we're all searching for is, will there be an opportunity to essentially step back, look at what changes one might have made in the normal course of a refinement of legislation? Not unusual at all. We pass legislation. Subsequently, we do technical corrections or other kinds of changes. Uh, I think it will be uniquely difficult in this instance uh, because of the politics surrounding uh, the passage uh, without a single Republican vote. Uh, the opposition on the part of many of the states uh, and what occurs in that context. Uh, but, you know, I think complicating or improving the opportunities, perhaps, you have a 2014 midterm election. You have more than 30 governors that are up for re-election. You have a third of the Senate. You have the entirety of the House. Uh, any number of things that could occur that would influence the opportunity to essentially uh, reopen some of these issues. I think at the moment, uh, those in opposition feel strongly and feel that it ought to be repealed. Those in support are reluctant to open it up for fear of uh, changes being made uh, that would that would put it at greater risk. So we're in the worst possible time to try and address what are real issues. Uh, and you know, my guess is it'll be post 14. Uh, before we can really sit back and uh, do that. And the 14 elections will have a big impact on how open uh, that conversation might be. And then, of course, by the time you hit 14, you're into the 16 presidential election. Right. So, you, I mean, you're really in a, a difficult period of time. Again, in the normal course, it would have been a conference. We could have addressed these issues. In this case, there wasn't. So if you were to write a follow-up paper to this one, um, uh, perhaps actually evaluating the law's success. When do you think that paper might come out? Oh, Elaine and I have talked about this, uh, and uh, I think we're quite interested in following these issues. And I don't imagine that um, we'll really have a good sense of that for at least a year. Uh, I think we'll wait and see what happens in January. We'll see if some of these issues with the um, exchange platforms have been improved. Uh, whether or not the uh, insurance industry uh, responds and how they respond to the question of uh, essentially having canceled plans and now potentially reopening those plans, uh, what the take-up rate is, how many people actually successfully navigate uh, the exchange and enroll, uh, and particularly people of your age, what happens to the invincibles? What happens to uh, my children? Um, who are all under the age of 26, but if they were, you know, a bit older, uh, what would their choice be? Would they, in fact, choose to go into the exchange or would they pay the penalty? Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's going to take a period of time and a greater understanding of what's occurring before we know the answer. Well, I really enjoy ending a podcast on being called Invincible, so uh, I think I'll, I'll stop. The young Invincible, exactly. <laughs> well, Sheila Burke, thank you so much for being on PolicyCast today. You're welcome. Thank you. You've been listening to HKS PolicyCast, a production of Harvard Kennedy School. Hear more interviews at hks.harvard.edu policycast. And join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag policycast. Thank you.